We're continuing in our series in the uh, book of Ephesians. This morning, looking at verses 7 through 16 of chapter 4. It's Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself Also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him, who is the head, even Christ, and from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, you present us here with a magnificent picture of the body of Christ in this world and how you have structured it how you have called it to operate, the effects of that not only in our own lives but in in the world around us. We are grateful for its instruction, especially for what it teaches us about the very nature of the church and our place in it. We ask, therefore, that your Holy Spirit would continue to instruct us this morning, as is his office, and that we would greatly enjoy, once again, having our minds refreshed about the great plan of salvation which includes us and our participation in your great working out of your purposes in this world through the church. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to imagine that uh, you and I are sportscasters and we're going to to broadcast a football game. And we're, we're standing on the sideline uh, near one of the teams, and, and the team is, is huddled just prior to the game. You know how they often do. Uh, this team happens to be praying, and, uh, and the coach is in the middle, and, uh, and at the end of the prayer, they all give a cheer, and they break. And then the team sits down, and the coach runs out on the field by himself. Well, you and I are staggered. We, we, we can't understand what's going on, and so we, we stick a mic in front of this 250-pound tackle, and we say... What's going on? What's the coach doing? He says, oh, he's going out to play. And we say, all by himself? And he says, sure, why not? 
He's had a lot more experience than we have. He knows the game well. We're a bunch of rookies, and, and we might mess up. Besides that, look at all the people who have came to cheer him on. Uh, we're stymied. We just can't understand what's going on. But sure enough, there's a coach out there by himself lined up against the other 11. That team kicks off. The coach receives the kickoff, begins to run down the field, and is promptly squashed by 11 other players, and then carried off the field unconscious. Well, it sounds ridiculous, but in many respects, that's the very view that many people have of the church. That they, they pay this one guy, okay, and he's going to do it all for them. He's going to do the preaching, the praying, the witnessing, the counseling, the outreach, the planning, the correspondence, the administration, the visiting, and so on. While they sit around, take it easy, enjoy the show. But God's plan is very different. His game plan is actually that he has gifted his church and every individual in it to carry out his work in the world. Paul is continuing to speak here about how we are to live in light of the magnificent truths that he has laid out in the first three chapters of this wonderful epistle. And he began in, in early in chapter 4, in the first six verses, to talk about the unity of the church. And in fact, he actually continues that very discussion here. Although now he, he talks about this this. Well, this unusual tension that exists between the fact that this unity that is the church also exists with great diversity, which in turn produces a deeper unity. One of the great needs that every person has is, is to belong, to have a sense that they contribute, that they have a place where they fit. And that's true whether it's in a family or in a workplace, in a school environment, uh, in our social set, uh, circles, wherever. It's true everywhere we go. And it's true in the church as well. Knowing where we fit. Knowing that we have something to contribute to the life and the health and the work of the church is something that every person needs to have. And it is precisely one of the things that God has given us here. Because he knows that as we use the gifts that he has given to us, not only does it give us a sense of belonging, but a sense of shared responsibility and relationship. It's good to be reminded of these things, I think, because often it is easy for us slowly but surely to become distracted, to, to drift away from the normal deep contacts we have with one another in the fellowship, and to find ourselves feeling somewhat displaced, and perhaps no longer contributing the way we once did. C.S. Lewis, very interesting guy, he thought, I got this from, uh, from play the other night, he thought that God failed to give Paul a clear sense of organization of his thoughts and his ideas. But I, I, I would differ with Lewis if I dare. Uh, here, I think, here I think it's quite clear that Paul knows exactly where he's going and what he wants to say. Because he basically begins by saying God has given gifts to the church. And the purpose of these gifts is to build up the church. And when the church is built up, it will result in the church's maturity and its faithfulness in its work in the world. 
that's where Paul goes, and that's where, by the grace of God, we're going to go for the next few minutes. Paul begins with these words. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, there are two important things I think we need to notice here. And the first is that it says that every individual has been gifted. Every one of us has received some gift of God by which we are to contribute to the building up of one another. I read recently that um, uh, years ago there were many, many varieties of bananas. But that over the course of some years, they began to uh, basically... I don't know what they do, how, how, they, how they take 30 varieties and, and, and wean it down to three. But they, they did that pr- precisely because of people's tastes. Most people didn't like variety number 27, but they liked number two. And so they took all these varieties and they got it down to just a few. The problem with that is that there's so little variety that a good blight can wipe bananas out. Now that is precisely the opposite of what God has done in the church. God has, has just there's so much variety in the church, whether it's gifting, whether it's experiences, whether it's personalities, whether it's background, whatever it happens to be, temperament, we are all so radically different. So much so that we all have different fingerprints. We all have different voice prints. We all have different eye prints of our irises, so they're finding out. I mean, God has made each one of us unique, and he has made each one of us unique to contribute in some profound way that no one else can to the place that he has called us to serve. What are these graces that he gives? Well, the answers are partially seen anyway in the lists of spiritual gifts found in this passage in uh, Romans 12 that we read earlier, in two places in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and in 1 Peter chapter 4. We read of such gifts as mercy, the showing of mercy, helps, exhortation, giving, uh, leadership, organization, hospitality, faith, the discerning of spirits and others. But here, very specifically, Paul focuses on four gifted persons that he gives to the church. He says he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Now, from our study in Ephesians so far, we recognize that apostles and prophets were given to the church as foundational gifts. But now their role has really been assumed by the canonical writings of the New Testament. That is, once the New Testament was in place, there was no longer any need for those two specific gifts as they were given in those days. And so those unique endowments did not, uh, did not survive or extend beyond the apostolic age, per se. But there is a group that God has given to the church in every age, and that is the evangelists and pastor-teacher. Today, evangelists, really, they're the obstetricians in the church, aren't they? They're the ones who who know how to bring new birth into the church. And it's an exalted office, if you ask me. I think it's quite wonderful that anyone has the title of evangelist, whether it's uh, Billy Graham or Luis Palau or anybody else. It is a wonderful, wonderful gift that people know how to communicate the, the the rudiments, the fundamentals of the gospel clearly, simply, and courageously. 
to people who God sets before them. And then there are the pediatricians, so to speak, the pastor teachers. Once people come into the church, they need to be taught, they need to be instructed. As you know from your reading of the New Testament, a pastor basically means shepherd, one who, who feeds, one who tends, one who cares, one who protects. And that's what pastor teachers do. They are called to give to the congregation the things that they need most in order to mature and to grow and to, uh, uh, to be found wise and, uh, and understanding of their, their newfound faith. Now, the second thing to note is that Christ is the source of these gifts. This grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, when we read this in verses 8 and 9, it seems to be a little confusing, doesn't it? He gets this Old Testament quote out of Psalm 68, verse 18. We don't quite understand what the heck Paul is saying here. Well, it's really, it's not all that difficult once you think about it in this way. Paul really is borrowing from the imagery of Psalm 68, which metaphorically describes God as ascending Mount Zion with his enemies in tow behind him and receiving gifts as the conquering king. That's the picture of Psalm 68. What Paul does is he applies that imagery to Christ the king, only he changes it a little bit. And you'll notice that he says that Christ ascended, implying that Christ first descended. Well, what does that mean? Well, Christ descended from his glory, if you will, in the incarnation. He came down. He he left behind some of those things which defined him as divine, as God. Just didn't take the priority of, of using them when he was here, as omniscience, for instance, or as omnipresence. And he came down. And down and down and down to the point where he put on human nature. Where he exposed himself to the fallenness of the world. So much so that he exposed himself ultimately to death. Becoming sin for us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. But then he burst up. He burst up through his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. From where he now dispenses gifts to his church as the conquering king. And that's precisely what Paul wants to communicate here. That the gifts which are ours in the church come to us from the one who first came down and identified with us, bore our sin, and triumphantly rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of his Father, and now dispenses to his body gifts to each person that is most fitting for them to have and to use for his work. God gave us these last two uh, groups of gifted men, these, these evangelists and pastors, teachers, Paul goes on to say, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. This is really a watershed doctrine for the church because it, it gives us a clear idea of what at least the church is not. The church is not, for instance, a pyramid with the pastor sitting at the top of the pyramid like, like a little pope looking down at all his minions, his all the people below him. It's not the way the church is structured. Nor is the church structured like a bus, with the pastor up front driving, 
and everybody in back sleeping. Now, that's not the way God means it. Instead, Paul sets forth here God's plan that his church is to be equipped to minister and that that and that alone builds up the body as nothing else can. Paul uses three words. First is equipping. Equipping basically means to make fit, to restore. It was often used as a medical term for for setting a broken bone back in place. If you've ever had a broken bone, you know how wonderful it is to have that bone set because it's miserable until it is. But once it is, it is a wonderful sense of completeness and ah, that's right, that's good. God has given pastor teachers two essential ways, two essential gifts or tools, if you will, for accomplishing that. The first and most important, of course, is the Word of God. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, he says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the first responsibility of the pastor teacher to equip his people is first of all to feed himself the word, then to feed them the word, and then to teach them to feed themselves the word. The second tool God provides is something that probably comes right to your mind already anyway, and that's prayer. Because pastor teachers are responsible as well to encourage prayer within the congregation to the best of their ability. But God's people are not prepared or equipped for their own interest primarily, but so that they can go on and carry out the work of the ministry. In other words, God equips us to serve. That's the whole point. It's not gifted men and women specifically who are just kind of a, a special group that's going to carry it all out and everybody else can hang around the edges and watch. God means for every person in his church to participate in the work, in the life, and the needs of the church, whatever they might be. The result, he says, of those two things, of equipping and of serving, is the church itself is built up. The term built up simply means to to build like a house, an edifice. But he's not talking about building up a church in terms of numbers. Talking about what it means to build the church in terms of its spiritual maturity, its understanding of the gospel, its obedience and love to Christ. These are the things which determine whether or not a church is actually maturing and being built up as it ought to be. Paul says there are two major things that fall out from that. The first is that we have a unity of the faith, and the second, that there is a deeper knowledge of the Son of God. The unity of faith is, uh, is, is really very interesting. It's not that we agree on every jot and tittle. But it does mean that we hold a common body of doctrine together. There are basic truths of the gospel that are so fundamental that we cannot sacrifice them and still either call ourselves Christians or enjoy the fellowship that comes from holding those things in common. 
oneness in fellowship is really impossible unless it is built on the foundation of commonly believed truth. In fact, Warren Lewis was correct. Because that was precisely what he argued. The second thing is that we attain the knowledge of the Son of God. Paul's not talking about the facts you get from Sunday school or Bible study. He's not talking about anything other than the real knowledge, the gnosis, that's often spoken of in the New Testament, this intimate knowledge, this relational knowledge of Jesus Christ. What it means to walk with him in obedience and love and intimacy. Now that's what Paul is saying actually takes place, that when we are built up, these two things come to characterize the local church. That we hold common truth together and it deepens our fellowship and that we have a relationship with God that is real and genuine and continuing to grow in depth and maturity over time. As a result of the proper equipping and functioning of the church, Paul goes on to say that the church matures mature so much that it comes to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, God's desire is that all of his people, every single one of us, reflect Jesus Christ, both in the church and to the world around us. This is to happen in two ways, Paul says. First is maturity in doctrine. If we participated in the equipping and functioning of the body, he says, we will not be children who are tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. I mean, immature believers are what? They're gullible, they're stable, they're fickle, they're easily influenced by the latest fad that comes down on the... On the There's a lot of that on TV. They're vulnerable to the wolves, and there are packs of them out there. It is absolutely amazing. But a well-functioning body produces people who are not dragged away by the trickery, the craftiness, and the scheming that so easily surrounds us. Each of these words is, is really illustrative of what Paul's saying. The idea of trickery is basically used of throwing dice. Because people who are professional gamblers know how to use dice really well, whether they're loaded or not as immaterial. These guys know how to use dice to fool you, to get what they want. The idea of craftiness is the idea of cleverly manipulating the truth in such a way that it's no longer truth, but in fact error. And scheming, which Paul refers to later in chapter 6 as referring to the devil, basically talks about planned, subtle, systematized error. Now, Paul's point is simply that if you've become mature, these things do not threaten you the way they do people who are brand new in the faith. Because, in fact, we are no longer children who are tossed here and there by by popular sentiment. We are no longer carried about by every wind of, of doctrine which comes down the pike. We can resist it because we know what the scriptures actually teach. 
Because our foundation in the word is sound and secure. It's amazing to me, and probably is to you too. I know it hasn't, uh, hasn't um, it struck you as it has I. That we live in a, a very sophisticated, uh, free uh, um, un, uh, country with unprecedented education. We have access to ideas left, right. And yet the number of Christians who are hornswoggled by blasphemous teachers of the gospel is unbelievable. The millions of dollars that they funnel to these people is, is just it's beyond comprehension sometimes. But it gives you a very clear indication of precisely what Paul says is so important in the local church. That people understand their faith. That they grasp onto it. And that they don't let it go. Because it keeps them safe. Well, the other result is maturity in practice. We are to, we are to radiate Christ's perfections, his character as we walk about in this world. In fact, we are called in Colossians to, to walk in the same manner as he walked. And he walked in complete fellowship with the Father, in loving obedience to him all the time. And so for us, the same, same rule applies. We too are to, to know the word, to do the word, to love the Savior, and to walk closely with him. Now, it's really fascinating that that Paul uses this language here. He specifically says that we are to speak the truth in love. Or, if your translation is a little bit different, it might say, walk the truth in love. Now, how do you get speak the truth in love and walk the truth in love? Well, it's interesting because the the actual translation, the literal translation of the word is truthing in love which includes the idea both of speaking the truth in love and walking in love. Walking as a person of integrity and grace and mercy towards others. And so when you bring those two ideas together, this this idea of truthing in love, there's a man or woman who is gracious in their speech, who builds up rather than tears down, who even in their confronting so broken by the fact that they need to confront, that it's obvious they're not doing it out of spite or enjoying one second of it. And that as they walk in the midst of others, they do so with humility, recognizing that it is only by the grace of God that they're able to walk uprightly at all. And that they do so desiring that others might be helped along the way. When we live like this, it is a beautiful and wonderful testimony to the reality of our Savior and his living presence in his people, the church. Mr. Holland's Opus is a movie about a a dedicated music teacher uh, who uh, dreams about being a famous composer. The problem is um, he didn't get the gifts to be a famous composer. And, uh, and so he was never able to actually compose his opus. Instead, he gave himself to the young people that God had placed in front of him. You know, the, the red-headed girl with, with pigtails who, who uh, struggles to play the clarinet. 
the, uh, the football player who's, uh, who's in the band because, uh, well, I mean, there's just no place else to go to give him the credit he needs to get, but he is tone deaf and can't, can't hold rhythm. Or the, the street kid who's mad at the world, but, but then finds in the music that it just it, it reaches his soul. Well, as the movie concludes, Mr. Holland is, is fighting for the, for the literal life of the music program because of budget cuts. He loses, and he has to resign, and then he decides to retire. The last day of classes, you see him clearing out his office. He, he's got everything in his box, the way people do. And his shoulders are slumped. He's, he's a man who is, who is beaten. He's defeated. He's, he's a, a perfect picture of a, a life spent without the realization of a dream. And he's walking around the halls of the, of the school for one last time before he goes home. And he, and he hears this noise in the, in the, uh, in the auditorium. So he's, he's drawn to it, and he goes, and, and he opens up the door, and the auditorium is full, full of students and prior graduate alumni of the school, all of whom begin to clap and chant his name, Mr. Holland, Mr. Holland. And they usher him in, and the red-headed girl with pigtails is now governor. And she addresses him with these words, she says, Mr. Holland, we know that you never became the famous composer you dreamed of being. But don't you see it today? Your great composition is what you did with us, your students. Mr. Holland, look around you. We are your great opus. We are the music of your life. Each of us the music. Each of us is the great opus of people who have invested themselves in equipping the church for works of service. We have grown up receiving the benefit of those people's labors and now are called upon to do the same. To give to others what we have so freely received. And I would call upon if you, for any reason whatsoever, because you do not have an excuse, but if for any reason you are not currently engaged in your local place of worship, in a manner consistent with the teaching of Scripture, invested in a person, invested in helping a program, invested in folding bulletins, I don't care what it is, you must find your place of employment so that you too can be a Mr. Holland contributing to the maturity of others and the health of Christ's church. Let's pray. Now, Father, we are so grateful that you have not left any of us out of the mix. That you have given to each of us gifts and calling upon our lives because of that truth. And there's great satisfaction that comes as we, as we find our place and as we use those gifts because it's a joyous thing to do so. And I would pray that each one of us here would, would make sure that we are engaged to some degree in using those gifts in the place that you have called us. And in doing so, Lord, that those around us might be edified and built up 
so that they too might serve, minister to others, and that this great process that you have placed within the church would continue to showcase Jesus Christ to the world as, as your work is done through this wonderful organization, this wonderful body, this wonderful group called your people, the church. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.